I'm supposed to be at a birthday party right now. Right now? Okay. You're at our birthday party. What are you talking about? I oh. am. Oh, my God. We are at a birthday party. <laughs> I was going to bring cupcakes. And then my... Uh, obviously, we were supposed to record the other day, so I ate them instead. What? What? You were going to make us watch you eat <laughs> yeah, a cake? Yeah, you just like, like, with, ca- <laughs> with candles, I'll have you. It was going to have two candles. Sorry, to go I- I'll in be line honest, Caroline. Okay. I'm glad we weren't, we, we're not watching you eat cake you made. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to dim the lights and everything. Oh, no, yeah, it's yep, one. Yep, it's just one. one. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the show where we learn anything and everything interesting and have been now for over 30 million seconds. <gasps> wow. Or one year. Today, as always, we'll be covering a science topic, answering a science question, and then hopping into a little miscellaneous topic. My name's Tom, and speaking of keeping track of time, today's main topic is going to be the timeline of timekeeping devices. Oh. oh. Watches and... Watches and stuff, yeah. Oh. I'm trying to get it on theme, loosely. You said this is you said this is birthday related, and this is very tenuously birthday related. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. <laughs> I'll give it to you. Okay, cool. My name is Ella, and today's question is When did human speech evolve? Ooh. Oh. That's a really fun one. Oh. Hmm. My name's Caroline, and I also went for a birthday theme. <gasps> of oh. course, I did. I'm talking about the history of birthdays oh. in general because we've not always celebrated birthdays so when did oh. we start oh, oh wait that's oh. very very good yes yeah. oh, i'm excited to find out and to celebrate the show's birthday <gasps> we have gifts for you all that you have to pay for <laughs> that's right we finally have merch <gasps> um thanks to the folks at max fund for helping us set up the store we have one design in stock right now and we're working on a lot more uh but if you go to let's learn everything pod.com slash store you'll find our little merch store which will have my favorite design uh, a little b that's saying let's learn everything uh designed by yours truly and shortly, um, within a week or so, we should have a design to celebrate our one-year birthday that is a list of every single topic that we've covered in the past year on a shirt. Also designed by yours truly, um, we're looking into stickers, posters, uh, and anything else. Uh, let us know, actually, in the Discord uh, what you'd like there to be merch of now that we can do that. So yeah, if you go to letslearneverythingpod.com slash store, you can wear your favorite podcast on your ah! favorite torso mm, is that good <laughs> your <laughs> that... favorite podcast on your favorite, <laughs> on your torso. favorite torso i don't know my torso isn't my favorite torso so can i put that <laughs> can i put the shirts on someone else you buy it as a gift whatever for someone. You, listen you buy that shirt you, you buy do it, it for their birthday <laughs> 
There you go. So, how familiar are you two with the timeline of timekeeping from the past to present? So, you know the concept of, what's it called? Immaculate design? You know, God. Uh-huh. So, I'm so curious about what the next sentence is uh-huh. going to Yes, and? <laughs> the only concept of timekeeping that I can think of in is any historical... Is the metaphor of the blind watchmaker? Is that what you're going to say yeah. to me? <laughs> yeah. God, of finding a, a perfect watch on the beach and God having made it. That is the only oh. concept of... I don't know why that came to my head, but that's all I that's know. So that's so really interesting. I mean, it's very telling about uh, <laughs> your, your, your science background that you're like, I don't know, watches <laughs> as a metaphor for uh, evolutionary design. <laughs> that's hilarious. Let me try to rephrase this question in a way that, that I've always thought about it, which is that like, if you were thrown into prehistoric times... How far in the technology could you recreate, do you think? I think I could do a sundial. I, <laughs> the most solid sundial you've ever seen in your life. That's just shadows. That. Like, how hard could that be? Yeah. There is there's a surprising amount of intricacy to it because of the fact that the angle of the sun changes with the seasons. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, if you're so good, why don't you go to prehistoric times, Tom? <laughs> yeah, Tom. I reckon I'd be pretty good at telling the time of year based on, like, the summer solstice and winter sol- solstice and stuff. So that's actually a really interesting distinction, Caroline, because uh, this topic, I'm going to be focusing less on longer-term things like calendars uh, and more on the short-term time-measuring technologies oh. uh, like clocks and sundials and watches. Interesting. Um... But I kind of led you astray with that question about like how far in the technology could you get? Because the most interesting thing from doing this research was that I I used to think of timekeeping technology as like these like upgrades. Like Mm -hmm. if you imagine a graph and like on the bottom left, you have the sundial and on the top right, you have like the atomic clock. And then you like have these steps along the way that are basically like iPhone upgrades, right? Like, it's like, oh, we all used weighted clocks. And like some of us had the weighted clock SE and then (laughs) the pendulum (laughs) clock came out and we all upgraded to that, right? Yes, that is very much how I think about it. But what I had forgotten is that keeping time is one of the most deeply human things, right? Like the least surprising thing I could tell you is that sundials date back to... Uh, ancient Egypt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Why everything? I will say this is it, this is not just ancient Egypt, but also ancient Mesopotamia, and basically oh. everywhere in the ancient world there were sundials. And because it's so deeply human, it is also deeply nuanced and deeply messy. <laughs> it, it is not at all a straight line from sundial to atomic clock. It is like a dozen different lines that crisscross in ways that you wouldn't mm-hmm. expect. Um, And I think that was the most interesting part of the research. And so to show y'all, instead of me trying to describe this messy graph in chronological order, uh, I want to start with a little game that I like to call Ancient or Recent. Oh! 
Oh, I'm so excited. How fun. So on today's episode, recent will be defined as anything happening within the past 1,000 years. And I want you to tell me if the idea in question is ancient or recent. So for example, as we learned on last episode, amputations are... Ancient! Very ancient. Very ancient. (laughs) So our first idea is dividing the day into 24 hours. Is that ancient or recent? Ancient. I'll mix it up and go recent. And can I just say why I think this? Um, Because when we were talking about sleep research and how the body's internal clock is inherently 24 hours long. So Mm -hmm. it is a natural thing to be to live in 24 hours so it makes sense that any homo sapien would follow that clock well i i more specifically i meant and i think it's actually really interesting that you interpreted the question that way uh what i meant is when did we decide arbitrarily to divide a day into 24 hours you're, you're so right tom i'm very I think I was thinking about it from like a a, de- a day is this long, and so it may yeah. So I'm so used to this being like yeah, how exactly. we exist in the world. I'm like, of course, that's how they do it. But yeah, why is yeah. it? But why you're right? Why is it 24 numbers specifically? Like I'm like, yeah, okay, why yeah. not 10 or 20 or like I can't believe one I was, of those I was things. Like, don't understand. I was like, genuinely didn't even understand what you're talking about. I was like, well, of I course, know, yeah. <laughs> duh, of course, it's 24. But no, that's what we're going to be dealing with in this topic is that it these time things are so deeply ingrained. Uh, The history behind this is that um, this is extremely ancient, and both the ancient Babylonians and the ancient Egyptians divided their sundial into twelve sections, the Mm twelve hours of the day, like the morning day, uh, because it fit their numbering systems. Yeah. Yeah, And so they had a 24-hour full day. Um, some other cultures have tried different things. Uh, there are like 10 segmented days in some regions of ancient China, which is interesting. 10 makes sense in my head, to be fair. Well, and we'll get, we'll get to that, Ooh. Caroline. Uh, but this 24 hours a day was the most widely used. And so it stuck. And it's still stuck to this day, which is... Wild. kind of <laughs> wild to think about like to put it in context like all of europe hems and haws about how they use the superior metric system with everything uh in base 10 Be- well but all of us still use 60 seconds 60 minutes and 24 hours because that's just the the numbering system that the babylonians and the ancient egyptians right. lined up with both of them that's really interesting uh, i will say though Maybe the funniest fact I found in researching this is that in the past, people have obviously tried to like switch to decimal time. You know, you can totally imagine someone being like, we should do this. It's smarter. But France actually succeeded in doing it. Mm. So in the late 1700s, um, famously, a lot of things happening in France at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, Sort of a revolution or something going on. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that was happening was this idea of switching to a decimal time system because it would, quote, result in much easier and more convenient calculations, which is true. So on September 22nd, 1794, decimal time was officially used in government. And on April 7th, 1795, the next year, um, it was declared that it was uh, no longer required, actually. (laughs) Uh, So... It was officially in place less than six months uh, because it just did did not take. Wow. 
So when you say successfully, what you mean is not successfully. <laughs> well, well, Ella, it was successful enough that some decimal clocks were actually made. Mm. Oh. And they, they, they exist. And I am so happy to add that to the the podcast's menagerie of forgotten technology along mm -hmm. with like the phono autograph uh and the random number books um yeah i just thought that was so funny that like they tried and they were like oh we can't do this guys <laughs> we, we gave it a shot back to the game the next item for the game of ancient or recent is alarm clocks ancient or recent ancient i was wrong last time so i'm gonna go ancient this time so alarm clocks are ancient okay, because uh to keep time without sun nearly every single ancient civilization we have records of used water clocks Ooh. and so some of these became surprisingly complex they were using like gears and requiring an understanding of fluid dynamics in many ways they are like as much the precursor to clocks as sundials are mm -hmm. uh, but some of these were used to know when to wake up uh plato is most famous for having an alarm clock like this around 400 bc wow. um, that is theorized to signal the start of his lectures oh what, what, so how did it, what was the alarm system? So uh, I'm going to describe just like a basic rudimentary one would be sort of like if you can imagine you have a bucket of water pouring into a second bucket of water, right? And then you have something in it that floats. And then when it overfills, it could uh, like fall onto a metal pan or something oh, to wake you up. Some of these were super complex. Like some had like pointers that could tell time, but that sort of idea has been around for a while, which is really kind of wild. All right. The next idea is the hourglass, ancient or recent? Ancient. Recent. Oh. So hourglasses are surprisingly recent. Are they? I'm what? going, I would. I want to say I'm just being counterintuitive with this. Anything you say, <laughs> literally the last three questions, I thought I'm going in the opposite what my natural feeling is because... Because <laughs> it would be more entertaining. No, no, because I'm just like, um, I'm sure that I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so the first... Uh, hourglasses may have been made around the 8th century, which technically by our definition makes them ancient because I said the last thousand years, but they were only in common use around the 1300s. Oh. Which is also around the time that the first mechanical clocks start to become widely used. I'm surprised at that, to be honest. Yeah. Just given you talking yeah. about water clocks, which has very much the same uh, system as a an hourglass mm -hmm. in terms of like you know the pouring of something yeah over time i will say the some of the mechanics of hourglasses are kind of interesting like most of them uh, some of them don't use sand some of them use like crushed up eggshells some of them use specific like metal grinds um, and yeah. so th they have their own issues to them but the, i mean the fact is that water clocks were basically good enough and they were functional enough and actually one of the main reasons why hourglasses became so popular in the 1300s is because of the increase of sea travel so as historian Robert Balmer put it, its development appears unquestionably linked to the development of shipboard technology because a water clock on a ship is like making a house of cards on a roller coaster. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it, it's, it does not work, but uh, sand flows a bit uniformly. Ah. Um, this is a quick fact. I might cut this out, this little tangent. But, you know, if you have an hourglass on a ship and then you have a length of rope with a bunch of knots tied into it evenly... You can throw it overboard, flip a small hourglass, and then you can count how many knots pass through your hands, and that's how we get oh. knots. Mm -hmm. 
the speed of ships, which That's is still what so we use today cool. for speed. So um, it was also used for things like managing uh, the night watch and stuff like that on these ships uh, because it, it actually works on a ship uh, as yeah. opposed to a water clock. I have um, to say, this whole topic is already blowing my mind because <laughs> in my head... I'm like, well, of course, ancient people had to keep time. They have yeah. things to yeah, do yeah. at specific yeah. times <laughs> of day. But in my head, I was like, nah, everyone just kind of just bumbled along with things. Well, yeah. I mean, in, in some ways, but... but um, I would imagine you know, people without money would have bumbled along a lot yeah, of the time. Yeah, to your point, to both of your points, there is a deep hierarchy of, like, um, you know, the church having these devices and and, and um, scholars having these devices versus more common people. Um, but... Um, yeah, I, it, it's a little bit of both. You know, it's not it's not like uh, everyone was like, oh, God, I'm like five minutes late to this appointment every day. But, yeah. but there was <laughs> there was timekeeping. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mentioned briefly there that that clocks also were appearing in the 1300s. Mm -hmm. So mechanical clocks and practical hourglasses were basically contemporaries, which is kind of wild. But yeah, um, it kind of takes away some of the mystery of hourglasses if you have one. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is a f ancient way to keep... No, it's not. It's rubbish. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it's true. Like, ancient Egyptians did... They used mm. water clocks, yeah. But so now that we start to see the first mechanical clocks in the 1300s, uh, this is where we can start to sort of construct a timeline to modern day. Uh, so we're going to step out of our game. Thank you all for playing. I think Ella Ella scored a three and Caroline think, scored a, mm -hmm, a, mm -hmm. a one. one. That's good. That's fine. Don't tell anyone. I, pur <laughs> I purposefully tried to trick you all. Um, and it didn't work. But thank you so much for playing. <laughs> so uh, in the 1300s is when something known as the escapement is invented. Uh, we don't even know who came up with the idea, but it is basically the invention that allows mechanical clocks to start taking off from here into the 21st century. Okay. And the thing that makes it great is is it turns a constant force into a periodic one so if you think about like putting a weight at the end of a spool of yarn mm -hmm. if you just like drop the weight the yarn will just like unravel super fast but if you add an escapement and a gear to the spool it can control this force so instead of falling all at once it falls like bit by bit by bit ah, by bit okay. as the escapement and gear hit each other um making that tick tock sound yeah that's what mm, that sound is okay and that's how the app TikTok was invented um, <laughs> but uh <laughs> awful that uh, it's been such a long day tom that was you've got to do better than that Come i'm on. so sorry i should have known i should have <laughs> i should have looked you in the eyes and be like they don't deserve this right now um no but but this this is how from this we can see how we get to modern clocks but once again the trajectory is not so simple um and that even starts with the word itself clock do either of you happen to know the etymology of the word clock i've never even thought about it to be completely honest with you i've just been like yeah clock that's been around forever obviously like of course it has an origin i just never even like pondered it i was gonna ask if you guys knew any like timey wimey like <laughs> uh prefixes or like words from from latin and pre Greek. and post oh tight kind of yeah. timey wimey so in my mind like common timey words are like chrono and like horo 
uh, which is how we get words oh, yeah. like chronological. Oh, of course. So common. And, the God chron- you know. <laughs> Listen, uh, uh, I, that's true. I've been doing too much research on this. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the, you know, the word, the prefix horo is how we get words like hour and horology. Oh, um, and I think, I think okay. chronos is like one of the gods of time. Chronological, yeah. fine. Uh-huh. It is common in language when you think about it, but it isn't common to your thinking this is fair yeah it's yeah. common to this topic that i've researched um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, tom's seen these words so many times but the thing is clock doesn't derive from either of those it derives from the medieval latin word cloca which doesn't mean time it means bell mm. and that's because the majority of clocks weren't foretelling time they were for signaling things to people like religious ceremonies uh, clock ta- like so clock towers yes exactly mm-hmm. yeah but to, to to mess with your mental image even more some early public clocks didn't even have faces what oh, they were just interesting so the they bells. just be- they would just, just chime system. on the hour or something exactly exactly oh, that's oh, uh, that cool. kind of makes sense to me actually yeah well because yeah. then everybody can access it can't they Whereas if it's yes. just like a clock face, not everybody can see it. A bell, everybody, yeah. like, you can't also, avoid you have it. Also, you have to learn to read yeah. time as well. Yeah, totally. yeah, yeah, yeah. And about, you know, no one was literate. So. <laughs> yeah. Hard. yeah, totally. Um, and there are there, there's obviously more mechanics to making it have, have a face, right? So knowing that's where we're starting with these like faceless clocks, I want to play another game with Yay! y'all. Which is, <laughs> which is put these clock inventions in the right order Ooh. as we get to modern day mm-hmm. clocks. So we have portable watches, Ooh. pendulum clocks, mm-hmm. clocks that have minute and second hands, the stopwatch, and the last one isn't an invention, but it is important because it's when is the time that people finally stopped using sundials? I feel like Ooh. people still use sundials. I mean, then they, they don't use them, you know, but they're around. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Yes, yeah. I'll go portable watches, stopwatch, pendulum, mm-hmm. minute mm-hmm. and second hand, and then we stopped using the sundials at the end of all of that. I've got portable watch, pendulum, mm-hmm. sundial. We stopped using sundials, minute and second hands, and then stopwatch being the most recent. Very interesting. I think you're both equally right on some and equally wrong on others. So we'll just go through this list. Uh, But this is very interesting. Okay, so portable watches surprisingly comes quickly after the invention of the clock. Mm -hmm. Um, They come out around the 1400s and they use springs and escapements instead of like weights and escapements. That that boggled my mind a little bit. The idea that we would be making miniature versions of these things so quickly. But that's. um, I suppose there's a need for it, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe that's why um, that that came about first. Um, the next boom in clock technology is in 1656 with the pendulum clock. Yes. Basically, by adding that pendulum uh, to the falling weight, the ticking of the clock is much more accurate. It, it seems like kind of like trivial, but like this is a huge like revolutionary improvement. Clocks went from drifting a second every single minute to drifting a second every three hours, which was much more usable. <laughs> and that improvement was so huge 
that in 1690... Minute and second. Clocks are finally accurate enough to finally have minute and second hands, uh, which is wild. That's 400 years after the first clock, we get the minute and the second hand, mm -hmm. like to put that in perspective. That's wild. And with that accuracy, soon after, in 1695, you get things like the physician's pulse watch, which is the first stopwatch that was oh, used for medical purposes. Oh, that's cool. For like things like uh, heart rate and stuff mm -hmm, like that, which mm -hmm. makes perfect sense. Um, do you want to guess when sundials stopped being used, roughly? 1820. Wait. I want to say like just before no. the First World War. 1620. <laughs> just tell me. <laughs> uh, uh, 500 BC. Uh, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, until the 19th century, sundials were still used to reset mechanical clocks. No way! Because they would drift so much. That yeah. makes so yeah. much sense, mm -hmm. yeah. I guess I, did, I didn't think about drift and the fact that it's still yeah. a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and this is what I'm saying when it's like, all these things overlap a ton, right? It's not just like, we threw away all our sundials and then we all got a clock and then we threw away the clock yeah, and we all got atomic yeah. clocks, it, it might, which is so wild. It's crazy. In my head, I was totally on board with the idea of like, yeah, we, we upgraded from the sun vial to the bell tower and then Literally, from the bell yeah, tower totally, to the, totally, totally. the watch, you know, uh, yeah, totally. So to, to recap, in order, you get clocks that were bells with no faces, uh -huh. portable watches, the pendulum, the minute hand, the stopwatch, and only then did people... Uh, get rid of their iPhone 1, the sundial, <laughs> uh, which just shows that the, the iPhone metaphor doesn't work. No, you've got um, like an iPhone 1 through to tw 20, and you've just got all of them yeah. at the same time, and you're using the apps <laughs> on all of the phones at once. <laughs> but you, only the clock app. <laughs> so, and, and basically the reason they could put the sundial behind is that as science advanced, we came up with more advanced ways of measuring the rotation of the Earth. Oh. Um, so, like, instead of measuring the angle of the sun, you can measure the rotation of the Earth compared to a distant star. Mm -hmm. And then you can also take into account mm -hmm. things like the tilt of the Earth, where the Earth is around the sun, all of these things with more accuracy. Um, and then, you know, scientists can then set the big clock in town. Then everyone in town can set their own local clocks. Um, they would actually, like, hire astronomers to set, like, the, the clocks of universities and stuff like that, which is no cool. Way. And so... Finally, putting the sundial behind us <laughs> as we enter the 1900s, we are beginning to approach the invention of the atomic clock. And I'm very curious to know, do you all know what makes the atomic clock so important? I'm not even entirely sure I fully understand what the atomic yeah, clock you've been, is. Yeah, so you've been saying be this thing, this yeah. term, and <laughs> I have no idea. It's, it's a thing that I've heard of, and I assume it's mm -hmm. like the clock that we base all of our other clocks on. Is, am I right? Yep. Yeah, okay. So you... Like the atomic clock, having gone through this, is maybe the biggest fundamental step in all of clock history, but not because it was accurate, but because it was so accurate, it made us redefine what time is. Mm -hmm. Because that's a lot. We'll explain it because even after we moved past sundials, the reference point for clocks is still the Earth. So as Helen Margolis, who's the head of Science for Time and Frequency at the NPL, put it, during this time, the Earth's rotation was still the master clock against mm -hmm. which other clocks were calibrated and adjusted on oh. on a regular basis. And that that's not just like a description. That is, at the time, it was the definition. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. So like during the 1900s, when this idea of like 
uniform scientific measurements was starting to be fleshed out, like as meters and liters were being decided on. A second was defined as one over 86,400 of a mean solar day. Yes, of course. So you take a sun. <laughs> I mean, I know that's a big number, but basically it's just like you take a, a, the length of a day, you divide it by 24 hours, divided by 60 minutes, divided by 60 seconds. And mm -hmm. like that is what a second is. You divide it from the spinning of the earth. Mm -hmm. So this is known as a mean solar second. And it was, it was the scientific unit of what a second was. A second is a fraction of the spin of the earth. Mm -hmm. But in 1927, the first quartz clocks were built. Uh, and unlike mechanical clocks that used weights or pendulums, quartz clocks, boy, how they quartz clocks use electricity and quartz crystals. And this is huge. Um, actually, it's tiny, but that's why it's huge. Uh, so the way it works is you run an electrical charge through a quartz crystal and it vibrates at a reliable frequency of around oh. 32,768 times a second. Mm -hmm. And if you keep that vibration happening under stable conditions, you have a clock that drifts one second every 30 years, wow. which is a huge improvement. And it's also a fundamental change because instead of dividing down a second from the earth rotations you could count up from this electrical phenomena you could base a second off of a, like a molecular property instead of an earth property does that make sense oh, you see the difference so like a second could be its own thing rather than a fraction of a fraction of something exactly you it could be a multiple of a vibration but why right? you is could this, say a second is why is this better though than i guess what my question is because right our, our time is based on the earth the earth's rotation like yeah our existence. that's a good question well, so this is the thing that's, that's a that's a great question because this is for the most part um a scientific thing mm -hmm. right because like for for ordinary people this this is no difference like no one in 1927 was like looking at quartz watches and being like oh my god the implications <laughs> um but for scientists this was becoming to be an issue because as clock technology is improving so is our understanding of the earth and our understanding that the earth is not that great of a clock right we, we've we've always known that the earth's spin has like some irregularities like astronomy is one of the oldest sciences but we're understanding now just how bad it is there are irregularities day to day and we know things now like the fact that the tidal pull of the moon causes the earth to lose one and a half milliseconds every 100 years mm. um, oh. there's all kinds of other like small adjustments that like we are starting to notice that that the Earth also has clock drift in a way. Mm -hmm. And so as science is improving and we understand the Earth's irregularities more and more, at the same time as science is improving, the alternative of a quartz clock or even an atomic clock is like getting more and more precise. Mm -hmm. And so seeing we have these two options now, um, what did the International Astronomical Union do in 1952? Declared that the Earth was shit at keeping time <laughs> the earth is no longer a planet <laughs> i was gonna say something equally like on that vein of like fuck the old system it's shit let's figure something yep. else out that's right in 1952 they redefined the second not as a fraction of a day anymore but as a fraction of a year what what huh yep uh, their their thought was, if the Earth's spin is so unreliable, let's just base it off the orbit. Oh, okay, that kind I mean, of makes sense. 
that makes sense, but I'm annoyed that they have another option and they well, went with yeah, that instead. Uh, you're not the only person who was annoyed by this. Um, so <laughs> this this moment in time, by the way, this gets abandoned is is the is the okay. what, what will happen. <laughs> yeah. But for this time, this was known as ephemeris time. And it is based on the idea that, quote, the fraction one over thirty one million five hundred fifty six thousand nine hundred twenty five point nine seven four seven of the tropical year of nineteen hundred January zero at twelve hours ephemeris time uh, is uh, what a second is. I fucking hate uh, it. Uh, <laughs> so ba- I mean, basically what they did was they were like, let's just do a more accurate big clock with the Earth. Right. Let's just push the buck. You know, it's easy for us to say this is silly in retrospect because I've sort of set us up for this. But people at the time also thought it was silly, uh, including uh, Louis Essen, who helped develop one of the first practical, usable atomic clocks uh, a few years after this decision was made. I'm going to be reading a quick quote from an amazing firsthand account of his that he wrote. Uh, it'll be in the show notes. Highly recommend it. Um, so he's, he's talking about this new proposal of ephemeral time. And he goes, quote, Unfortunately, although this unit might be expected to be more constant than the mean solar second, it is much more difficult to measure, and the observations would have to be averaged over years to give the required accuracy. This rendered it useless as a unit of measurement, which must be available immediately. I pointed out that whatever advantages this unit might have for the astronomer, it was useless for the physicist and the engineer, and suggested that since an atomic unit would be needed in the future, it would be wise to defer a decision until the agreement could be obtained on the definition of such a unit. There was no support for this suggestion, and the second of ephemeral time was adopted and was later confirmed by the International Committee of Weights and Measures, showing how even scientific bodies can make ridiculous decisions. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I, so what did you say that big organization was again? Uh, the... the International Astronomical Union and also the International Committee of Weights and Measures both decided on this. The International Committee of Weights and measures how do you get on that committee i want to i want to go and fuck to if, if you up, weigh you know? exactly 100 kilograms they're like you're perfect <laughs> <laughs> if you're exactly two meters tall they're like perfect, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah basically what essen is saying is like y'all look at what's happening in physics we're going to have a better answer if we just like wait a few years instead of trying to pass the buck like the metaphor i, I think of is like if you had leaky pipes in your apartment that were patched with duct tape and you went to your landlord and you were like listen just give me like a few days to figure out some pipes to fix this and then the next day they just had like more expensive duct tape yeah because it's still the same problem but it just passes the buck for Mm -hmm. another Mm -hmm. few years and essen was right uh the atomic clock that scientists would then develop measures vibrations not just in a crystal not even in the molecules of a crystal but in the electron changes of atoms specifically atoms of the element cesium Mm -hmm. Uh, if you've ever heard that of cesium uh, atomic clocks so while a quartz crystal vibrates thirty-two thousand seven hundred sixty-eight times a second can you guess how many times a second these electrons can fluctuate just it's just a big number. Um, uh, two hundred and fifty-seven thousand. A million. It's nine billion times a second. Oh come <gasps> on! Oh my god! Okay. <laughs> and uh, Lewis Essen's invention to the atomic clock is what he did was he was he hooked it up to a regular quartz clock. Mm-hmm. So like instead of I, I think we have this image of like an atomic clock is like it's like a chamber and there's like a single atom in it. No, what I I'm, kind no, of... I'll be honest. What I'm imagining is okay. like a pink crystal. Dwight. Yes! Yes! 
with with, with mean, wires yeah. hooked up and it's and the crystals with just like, shaking. <laughs> <laughs> Literally with like a red wire and then like a bit of cable like sticking out of the end of it, just touching the rock ever so slightly and the rock going, Meh. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've got in my You're head. kind of you're kind of not wrong is the wildest <laughs> part. So practical atomic clocks these days don't measure these electrons like 24 seven because that would be so expensive to do so what they do is they have a less accurate quartz clock and they just sync it up every so often periodically so like the atomic measurements are like a tuning fork to to the the regular clock does that make sense what would happen if we didn't have clocks this accurate you know is society as we know it going to crumble that was sort of my this feels like it's so accurate that it's not necessary at this point yeah yeah uh-huh so i will say i'm gonna get to some uses of it besides just having like a really big number um one is that you can derive a second for scientific purposes without having to measure these things so like um you know obviously things like the large hadron collider involve things on like i don't even know like nano picosecond measurements Mm -hmm. right and so Mm -hmm. being able to derive that from the ground up instead of from the top down lets you be a lot more accurate but you're you are correct and we'll i'll actually get to that um as the last thing but uh to regurgitate some bigger numbers at you all lewis essen's first atomic clock was created in 1955 and it would drift one second every 1.4 million years wow okay and because they were so accurate by 1968 the second was finally redefined yay no longer being the motion of the earth our longest and oldest clock but now by the atom which is Mm -hmm. a clock that is technically older than the earth in a way we just can now finally measure it and according to nature in 2015 improvements to the system could theoretically make clocks that quote gain or lose no more than one second every 15 billion years which is longer than the current age of the universe oh my god oh but what why why again again the the important thing isn't the size of the number it's the 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 redefining that yeah. I think is the is the important part That's here. That's very fair. So as Patrick Gill of the National Physics Laboratory says, quote Yeah, he burped in his quote. <laughs> um, he says, quote, We use atomic clocks because they are based on the unchanging constants of physics, as opposed to the Earth, which is reliable but inconsistent. And also, this is an interesting point. Looking to the future of timekeeping, we will need these kinds of clocks if we ever explore beyond the Earth, the big old clock that is the Earth and the Sun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. because if if probes and rovers and satellites and maybe even one day humans leave the Earth for space, we won't be able to measure the Earth anymore. And so we need to be able to come up with a definition that works no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now... To both of your points, I don't want to leave us on that because I promised the human nuance of timekeeping. And so that's the last thing I want to end on, because while we've managed to separate time from the Earth, we have still not managed to separate time from each other, uh, because I think something just as important as the invention of the atomic clock is the invention of something that y'all have probably not heard of. It's something called NTP. Do you all know what that is? No. No. So NTP stands for Network Time Protocol, and it is how internet devices can coordinate time. Oh, 
As Google describes it, quote, the network time protocol is used by hundreds of millions of computers and devices to synchronize their clocks over the internet. If your computer sets its own clock, it likely uses NTP. Whatever device you're listening to this on, it uses NTP. And as David Mills of the IEEE wrote in a paper, quote, an argument can be made that the network time protocol is the longest running, continually operating distributed application on the internet. This makes yeah. sense. I mean, it makes sense. Your My, my yeah. phone does always know what time it is. Yeah. Yeah, e- even yeah. when the clocks change, it's on it. I don't have to do anything. And and so much of the internet is dependent on not just keeping accurate time, but like coordinating it. Yeah. And that's because so much of our human history is not just about keeping accurate time, but coordinating it, yeah. right? Yeah. The, the, the story of timekeeping is not just how we measure time, but how we tell it to each other. Um, and I think that that is what explains all of the like weird turns in, in our timeline, right? Like that that's why we're stuck with 24-hour clocks is because we have to socially communicate time and we can't just like change that yeah, overnight. Yeah. That would be nuts. Um, but it also explains some of the more beautiful turns in the timeline, like the fact that in uh, the 1920s, uh, we had phone lines that told people the time when you called them. I don't know if you you are familiar yeah, with that. Yeah, yeah, this is a, the talking clock, right? That's what they call it when you've... Yeah. It is. It's like at the tone, the time will be. Yeah. There's a really famous one in the UK. There's like a, a like a voice that's really well known for doing yeah, the specific yeah. clock in the UK. And what's wild is that a hundred years later, those phone lines in the US at least still get three million calls a year, according to the Atlanta. No. Why? What? Why? What? what? Why? <laughs> Why? If they're calling off a phone. The phone has the time on it. Uh-huh. Not not if it's a landline. I don't know. Even my parents' landline has a clock on it. Listen, it's well, it's it's just a human thing, right? It's just that this is this is the aspect of the timekeeping that we like the story of timekeeping is incomplete without this social consideration, as well as the technical, right? Like this is st- Taylor's oldest time that like we have better technology, but people are just so used to a thing. Uh, and of course, the people behind the atomic clock are also fully aware of how important this social aspect of timekeeping is. So the ITU, the International Telecommunication Union, is the organization that coordinates UTC, or Coordinated Universal Time, mm-hmm. uh, which Wikipedia describes as the primary time standard by which the world regulates clock and time. So that's that's what you were talking about, uh, Caroline, earlier about like an atomic clock that synchronizes everyone's yeah. clocks. Yeah. But they don't just use one perfect atomic clock. They actually average the time over 300 clocks in more than 60 locations around the world. But the funniest example... <laughs> of this like social consideration of timekeeping is actually in the name UTC. So I mentioned that the abbreviation for coordinated universal time is UTC. Do you know why the acronym doesn't line up? No. So some of you are going to find this absolutely eye-worthy. I think it's hilarious and delightful. So on their frequently asked questions page, they say, quote, the International Telecommunications Union felt it was best to designate a single abbreviation for use in all languages in order to minimize confusion. For example, in English, the abbreviation would be CUT, and in French, the abbreviation would be Tuan Univers Coordiné, which would be TUC. So, to avoid appearing in favor of any particular language, the abbreviation UTC was selected. Oh, that's so... So it's confusing for everyone. (laughs) I never thought about what it meant. That's such a good point, yeah. They picked it because 
they didn't want to show favoritism to any grammatical system. They made it confusing for everyone. For Perfect. everyone. And what better symbol of the way we have all been trying to make time work for our messy, messy human societies. Yeah. Um, because like you said, Ella, I think you sort of touched on this idea, like time is as much what we tell each other it is as it is the 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 changes of electrons in a cesium atom uh so i'm i'm just glad to mark time with you all today uh with this silly human timekeeping yeah. tradition of this podcast Aww. birthday that is so so fascinating tom i was so surprised how like how fascinating i find this topic yeah <laughs> and as always at the tone the time will be 4:54 and 12 seconds beep Hello dreamers, this is Evelyn Denton, CEO of the only world-class, fully immersive theme resort, Steeplechase. You know, I've been seeing more and more reports on the blogs that our beloved park simply isn't safe anymore. Mur murdered them? I'm gonna wreck it. They say they got mugged by brigands in the fantasy kingdom of Ephemera, or hijacked by space pirates in Infinitum. I mean, I could have a knife. My papa said that I needed to do a crime. Friends, I'm here to reassure you that it's all part of the show. These criminals were really just overzealous staff trying to make things a little more magical for our guests. We're just as safe as we've always been. This isn't a county fair, dreamers. This is Steeplechase, the Adventure Zone. Every Thursday at MaximumFun.org. Today's question is, when did human speech evolve? Uh, before I get any information from you, um, we need to kind of answer one very simple question. What do I mean by <laughs> speech? This was the question I was oh going boy. to ask. Because so like, <laughs> humans have been able to make noises forever. Mm -hmm. When does that become speech? When do we cross oh. that line? I assume when it's mm. like standardized sounds that mean a thing. That's mm. a good definition. Are we gonna talk about are we gonna talk about like animal language at all in this no but yes it's okay. not and but you just brought up a very good point there tom you just said the word language Ooh. and we're not talking oh. about language we're talking about speech uh -huh. do you know uh, what no i can't those are the same word please <laughs> do you... uh. yeah do you know what the difference is speech mmm uh. <laughs> <laughs> Does this have anything to do with the fact that, like, ASL is a language but isn't speech? Question mark? Uh, yes, in a way. It, it, like, okay. uh, we don't talk about that, but you do. You are touching on the right thing. That language doesn't necessarily involve sound. Oh, yeah. It's like a system more than it is, like, what the... That's so... Speech, I'll, I'll, I'll answer it for you. Speech is the sound <laughs> of spoken language. It includes the formation of sound the nature of the sound quality and the rhythm and the flow of the sound. Language is the words we use to okay. get across ideas. I've never, never had to separate those words in my brain before. This but is... spe speech is a subcategory of language. No. <laughs> speech is how we convey language. Yes, it is a way separate that... Okay. Things. You yeah. can... I see the difference. I see the difference. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Th that, is a, that is a perfect way to put it, Caroline. Um, and speaking about animals here, 
you might be tempted to then think, oh, then animals can do speech because they make sounds that communicate with each other. Yeah. Re mm. In research, sounds that animals make to communicate are considered vocalisations, not speech. And that is a very mm, key mm, point mm, to mm. the whole thing we're going to go through now. Now All that right. we have that out of the way, what are your first guesses, your first hunches for when speech first evolved? I am going to throw out a ridiculous number because I'm basing it off last week's question, which was obviously when mm -hmm. amputations mm -hmm. were happening. Yeah. Obviously, for something like that to happen, we'd have to have some way of communicating in a reasonably advanced way. So I'm going to say something like... Oh, so <laughs> hang on. <laughs> when we say... So we're talking about human specifically, right? Mm -hmm. Which human are well, we talking about? Oh, you're so clever, Caroline. Thank you. <laughs> Putting human speech in is a bit of a misdirection. Uh -huh. I mean, I mean speech. I just mean speech. Okay. Speech period. A speech period. So humans didn't make speech. That is really up to you to answer at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, okay. I just realized also something. How the how the fuck are we gonna know the answer? <laughs> there's no how the what there's no speech fossils. <laughs> we know uh, when yeah. the first recorded speech. Oh wait, what? Oh wait, there are there might be speech fossils indirectly. Yeah, it may be. So give, give me a year. Throw out a year. How many years ago? I want to say like Neanderthal period, maybe even. Uh, homo sapiens or human? Sa yeah, I'm going to say around Homo sapiens and Neanderthal. So that's time. probably 300,000, which we established last episode. Yeah. I was going to go for a similar number, to be fair. Yeah. I think this is a really right. That's probably where I would have guessed too. Oh boy. Mm -hmm. So now that we have that idea, do you know what makes functional human speech possible? The function of making <laughs> these sounds that we make that make language. We do it every single day. <laughs> Our larynx. So that's a, this is a very good point. Yes, larynx, mm -hmm. which is also known as your voice box. If you touch yeah. it now as you talk, you can feel the vibrations. It's at yeah. the base of your neck. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So actually what makes functional human speech possible is the ability, which is linked to oh, what you Can I change about, my is... answer? How much impact does your tongue have? Oh, you know, you are really hitting on like very salient points that we are going to get into. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> actually, what I want to... Oh, wait, wait. Diaphragm? <laughs> Ooh. No, you know what? That's the only one we don't talk about, Tom. Sorry. <laughs> Fuck oh. me. <laughs> So what makes functional human speech possible is the ability to form contrasting vowel sounds. I know it's not something you would have thought about before, but they allow Whoa. us to di differentiate unrelated words that only vary by a very minute sound. So, for example, yeah. bat, bought, but, bet. Mm -hmm. Those sounds that we're making is a very distinct ability that not all animals have. Oh, okay. Okay. Eh, uh, oh, vowels, <sighs> contrasting vowel sounds. I guess that's based on a lot of different things developing, then, not just one thing like the larynx or the you, tongue, like a combination of those. I think you know, you're, the fact that you're thinking about that is you means you're ahead of speech evolutionary research has been for a long time because the first and most dominant theory of the evolution of speech and and still is the, one of the most dominant is called the laryngeal uh -huh. descent theory. Do you know? Ooh. Can you take a guess of what that is? You've talked about the larynx already, so you're half of the way there. Half of it. The Can I guess it? Chill. Is it the idea that once that developed, then other sort of like articulation things in uh, 
Sorry, had to pause for a second because I was suddenly so aware of the tongue in my mouth <laughs> as I was talking. Uh, <laughs> um, is the idea that then from there, other things develop to articulate sound even more from that? Is that the idea? Um, this is so... You're, I think you're thinking almost too far ahead because we're talking about the rude, oh, okay, okay. such the rudimentary starts of speech. Okay, okay, yeah. The theory boils down to the idea that the larynx must be in a low position in the throat to produce those different oh, G vowel sounds. physical descent. Yeah, exactly. Oh. I was thinking evolutionary descent. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, And the theory explicitly states that this is something humans can do, but non-human primates cannot do. And the main body of work around this theory is published throughout the 1960s. And it just happened to be like excellent timing for the work because in the 1950s, there had been two very well-known projects that had failed to teach chimpanzees speech. So there was this oh. like zeitgeist... Huh? Like, oh, monkeys cannot speak. They cannot make human speech sounds. What I wouldn't give to be to sit in on that classroom. Okay. To be like, hey, cat. <laughs> cat. <laughs> so from 1968 to 1971, Philip Lieberum, who proposed this theory, published several articles that basically shaped the field of research. Um, and there are four key ways they came up with this theory. I appreciate this is a particularly mm -hmm. difficult question, but do you have any ideas about how you would have approached this kind of research looking at the larynx and laryngeal descent theory? Oh, 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 oh. What about um, thinking about it from a, like, um, as you grow up from a kid to a, an adult, see if it changes? Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, very, that's a good point. So they did look at uh, infants um, mm -hmm. during mm. this research. Any, anything else? A part of me wants to go back to that fossil record. Yes, question. Caroline. Yeah. Fossil so, records. I'm so good at this. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this question, it can feel sociological, but it is in very much a uh, archaeological yeah. question in a mm. lot of ways. Mm. Um, mm. So there are four kind of key ways that they, they approach this work. So to start off with, they recorded different non-human primate calls, like chimpanzees and gorillas and macaques, and they analysed them with spectrograms. We've talked about spectrograms before. Mm. They're, the, yeah, yeah. they're the visual representation of a spectrum of frequencies, mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. they've been the standard tool for visualising speech since like the late 1940s. And from this, they can make inferences about the anatomy of the vocal tracks of monkeys mm -hmm. and anatomical differences between them and then they use this mm. same methodology to investigate human infant cries like tom mentioned from birth to four days old wow Whoa. okay that's it it at first i thought this was fucking impossible but now mm -hmm. it's like i, I can kind of see uh, yeah. it next they determine the shape of the vocal tract in non-human primates using plastic acid x-rays um, and they mm -hmm. made a computer implemented model of the vocal tract, which allowed Ooh. them to basically change the shape of the vocal tract and compare it with humans when they were making different sounds to see Whoa. if it was possible to make the same shape. Last, they used uh, casts of fossil skulls, like Caroline said, to determine wow. the vocal anatomy of Neanderthals. Um, and these were Whoa. extensively compared to both adult and infant humans. Holy moly. So wow. this, does this seem like good science to you? This isn't a trick question. So, like, <gasps> on the surface of it, yes, because they're going through all of these steps. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. using what they know to, like, physically create these sounds, but it, it just, it misses out on other you know, aspects, mm -hmm. you well, know? I have, my, my fear is that they are using the concept of evolution to put these in the wrong order perhaps that they might not be yeah. if that makes sense you know what this I mean? like, is very you guys are so smart 
We should start a podcast. <laughs> Honestly, I'm fascinated by the, you guys like hitting on these points so well because when I was researching this, I was like stumped the well, whole time. You are also you're setting us up very nicely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. to just like jumping into the research whole cloth, but like right my right because the moment you start saying the moment you have the, in the sentence Neanderthals, monkeys, and humans in the same sentence, you have to be very clear, like yeah. mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. what way you're comparing them chronologically through evolutionary history. That's a very good point. So the que- so the question: Does this seem like good science to you? You guys, you know, on the surface, yes. There are some aspects that are great that are yeah. rock and roll, yeah. And I think so too. There are aspects of this. The way they approach it seems like very, very well done. And this mm-hmm. is a quote from a review article that I'm going to be talking about a lot later. Oh, amazing. Um, Love a good review article. It bears noting that in these articles, Lieberman and his colleagues covered the requisite foci for investigating human evolution, fossil hominids, human growth and development, and living non-human mm-hmm. primates. Together, these studies yeah. represent an extremely powerful research paradigm drawn directly from the yeah. core understanding of human speech. And when I read that, I was like, yeah, these, this makes so much sense to me. Mm-hmm. And the core conclusions of this work was that human infants non-human primates and pre-anatomically modern homo sapiens which is the term that we use for current humans mm-hmm. can only produce schwa like vowels do you know what a schwa is no it's the upturned v in the phonetic alphabet and it's oh. this sound uh okay yeah huh so that oh like like babies may, oh, mm-hmm. oh they're saying okay. that they're saying that infants non-human primates and hominids uh so the primates from the family that we are in hominidae can only make that sound the schwa sound uh and it's only anatomically modern homo sapien adults alone that can articulate the full range of vowels because of the shape of their vocal tract which Ah. is because of this descended larynx and also a large pharynx yeah whoa so you, got, so you understand this idea. Yeah. Adult humans can make the contrasting vowel sounds because of the shape and size of our larynx and, and the position. Mm-hmm. So according to this, then the steps of evolution, which is this, I feel, the idea that you're hitting on before, was that our larynx descended, then speech emerged, and then language mm-hmm. emerged. And these mm-hmm. things, according to this theory, would have happened almost simultaneously. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this means, as you guys guessed, this would happen when Homo sapiens arose, which was, as we know from the last episode, 300,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So. So we're right. Yay. Yeah, you're All right. right. Yeah, that was it. Right, we're done. <laughs> science ends when it makes me right. That's when science stops. <laughs> so speech, according to the laryngeal descent theory, arose 300,000 years ago. And this theory would come to be accepted by most like evolutionary biologists and primatologists and become the dominant theory for the next 50 years. Wow, okay, yeah. Here is a quote from the review I mentioned before. Liberum's conclusions became a touchstone, accepted as essentially fact. It was taught in textbooks and routinely disseminated in publications on the origin of language and seemed so evident that it was taken as canonical. Researchers... Mm tended to overlook criticisms of his conclusions, even serious mm. arguments regarding the articulatory cap- capabilities of Neanderthals or infants, because these arguments could be discounted as tangential to the core of the theory, the vocalisation mm. of non-human primates. Lateral descent theory also generally lacked support from speech researchers. Oh, interesting. Oh. I, I gotta say that I hadn't considered that aspect of, like, because it touches on so many things, mm-hmm. like... 
you like then someone who like specifically researches one of those things like starts to chip away at it and it's mm -hmm, like hey mm -hmm. actually this yeah. but because it, it's like it blockades it because it's this big theory the multidisciplinary so nature of speech research is so important to this whole story wow but anyway this review is called which way to the dawn of speech reanalyzing half a century of debates and data in light of speech science oh what a what a killer title if i saw that i'd be like <laughs> saving this it came out in 2019 wow. really recently yep. wow oh, god you love a great review sorry i'm so hyped it really seems to this sole review seems to have shaken up the whole field of speech evolution by bringing totally. together all the contrary evidence and criticisms. Oh. And some of which we will go through now, because this question topic isn't really about when did human speech evolve, but how <laughs> how do we how can we know this? How can we possibly yeah. figure it out? Yeah. And oh, <laughs> yes. so first this is an amazingly complicated review full of terminology I don't fully understand and models mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I definitely don't understand, but we're going to touch on some of the few salient points. Um, can you think of any reasons why laryngeal descent theory may not hold up today? Could we maybe have learned something about maybe like developmental uh, growth of the laryngitis or the, lary the, the larynx? <laughs> I don't know. I don't fucking know. Um, I don't know. Although you're not so far away from a point there, which, which is, I think, the idea of like the theory says that infants cannot make these sounds i just i keep coming back to this thing of like there's just so much that's being missed out of it because we know that other aspects of our you know our mouths our throats are important in the production of sound mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there's no fossil <laughs> record of tongues yes Caroline. because <laughs> i'm so good at this because tongues are a soft tissue and they don't fossilize you are oh my so god caroline i i feel like I'm going to give you a lot of credit for this, but also I feel like because we talked about this last week, you may be, you're, you're so <laughs> prime. I've for also it. spent so much time at work talking of about course, sound of course. this week. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> so this okay. is definitely not knowledge usually you're, in my head. What you're yeah. talking about, Caroline, is incredibly important, incredibly important. But we're going to go first, we're going to go through some of more brief criticisms. Cool. Really briefly, the technology available that they had at the time was really underpowered mm, mm. to analyze oh, these things. Point. We have much better Great technology point. now. Yeah. Yeah. You say you say X-ray, and I think, oh, obviously, like super accurate. Uh, but you yeah, know, all these technologies. Not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we can do three yeah. proper three D reconstructions now. Mm -hmm. We also have what I mentioned before, which is that speech scientists didn't have any input into this theory. Yeah. 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 Hey. People <laughs> who understand precisely how these sounds are made and why. Yeah. didn't have any input. Then another thing was Neanderthal vocal tract reconstruction was criticised by other researchers. You guys would never have guessed this because they focused on the hyoid bone, which is the U-shaped bone in the neck that supports oh, the tongue. Sorry, did I not mention the hyoid bone? <laughs> but basically, the, the reconstruction they made, made was basically so high in the Neanderthal reconstruction that it, it wouldn't have been able to lower its jaw or swallow. Oh! <laughs> Like, that's a humongous blunder. Wow. Okay. Well, I, can, I mean, you know, the question is, did they have that theory in mind before they started this reconstruction? Because, yeah. like, of course you're gonna you're gonna like be like, yeah, you know, you know mm -hmm. even either explicitly or even implicitly, right? Like, uh, uh, go with that in there, mind. Of course, that, like, of course. And this is something that scientists have issues with all the time. It's why you uh, you need yeah. to blind analysis because right, you right. will even unconsciously bias yourself yeah. to make your, your results yeah. where you that you think they'll go that's so interesting <laughs> and before the the big one i'll say so 
this is something that felt really, really obvious to me. So in the late 90s, researchers started to basically publish evidence that laryngeal descent is not uniquely human. Ah. They looked, the the original studies looked at non-human primates, infants, Neanderthals and adult humans. They didn't look at any other animals. (laughs) Oh, that's such a good point. Sure, a great point. And this is so central to the theory that laryngeal descent right, is right. the prerequisite for speech. Yeah, yeah. Other mammals do have descended larynx. They did. Di- no fucking way. And yeah. they just didn't check. They just no. didn't check. Wow. Deer, no gazelles, way. chimpanzees, lions, koalas all have descended larynx. In 2000, a cognitive scientist called uh, Tecumseh Fitch published a study showing that larynx is temporarily lowered in loads of animals like goats, pigs, and dogs, and tamarins, oh. which are other monkeys, uh-huh. when they vocalise to make deeper sounds. Oh, cool. And Fitch proposed that this basically descended larynx in mammals that have it permanently or temporarily might have evolved as a result of larger body sized. So uh-huh. the larger animals got this because it was just an elongation of the human body that led to the, oh, the larynx yeah. becoming lower in the throat. Mm-hmm. And it was just co-opted for speech by us. It wasn't made mm-hmm. it, for mm-hmm. speech. Yeah, yeah. Right. That, and that, that is also so, yeah something interesting. The idea, like, the idea that like speech is like a natural evolutionary end point is also kind of fraught versus yeah. this yeah. idea that you're talking about that uh-huh. like it it maybe it's it, I'm much more likely to believe a theory that's like we got bigger sizes and then things moved around in our bodies and then this happened mm-hmm, to be mm-hmm. able to to make these noises. I totally yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. So the final point, which you guys have both already talked about, um, but we'll ask the questions anyway. It's the idea that other animals do seem to be able to produce vowel-like sounds, basically. Oh, oh wow. okay. Just not as a result of the larynx. What else could be helping us make sounds? You've already said it. Your tongue! The tongue. Yep. These are articulators. Any vocal organs above the larynx are called articulators. Your tongues, your lips, your teeth, your hard palate mm-hmm. are all part of making sound, of all part of speech. Of course they are. And I was going to ask the question, why might it be difficult to understand the evolution of speech from articulators? But Caroline's already answered that question. This is a quote from an Atlantic article. As John Locke, a linguistics professor at Lehman College, put it, motor control rots when you die. Soft tissues like tongues and nerves and brains don't fossilise. DNA sequencing is impossible past a few hundred thousand years. No one has yet found a diary or rap track recorded by a teenage ostrich. <laughs> and, then, and then he says a word that I don't know, but it's basically an, a very ancient human. <laughs> ah, okay. Um, and like, this is one of the issues we spoke about last episode when trying to identify the early surgery. And, mm-hmm. and as Caroline has already put. Moving on, the review... Um, as I'm going to call it, the review, pulls together mm-hmm. a body of work that demonstrate that other animals can modify their vocal track in a configuration to make vowel-like sounds using their articulator mm. specifically. So, for example, mm. in 2017, speech and cognition researcher Louis-Jean Beau and his team published data analysing over 1,300 naturally produced vocalisations from a baboon Ooh. troop and determined they could make Proto vowel sounds wow. that were contrasting, like enough that, yeah. that mm, they were mm, di- mm. they were significant from the schwa sound. Tecumseh Fitch, who I mentioned before, studied the vocal tracks of macaques with X-ray and video and found that their vocal tracks actually appear to be speech ready in the same way humans are. 
Oh. And both macaques and baboons are old world monkeys, which are in a different family to hominids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The review also used data from uh, earlier research to model speech sounds. And both their other work that they talked about and their models come to the same conclusions, which is this a new perspective. If the emergence of articulated speech isn't dependent on laryngeal descent and primates can make sounds or proto-vowel sounds, how far could we look back to for the evolution of speech? Oh, holy shit. Oh, God. (laughs) Probably very far. Yeah, I mean, like, to the point where humans break off from other... Like, like the most common ancestor, you could possibly trace it all the way back to, uh-huh. couldn't you? Yeah, because there's no way of differentiating, basically. That's a very, yeah, you're, you're spot on the money there, Caroline. I mentioned that baboons and macaques are old world monkeys, and our common ancestor with old world monkeys is 27 million years ago. Wow. Oh, boy! Wow. Okay. In theory, oh there were animals ready, speech ready, as far back as 27 million years ago. Wow. But researchers uh-huh. don't actually think that speech arose 27 million <laughs> yeah, years ago. Yeah. Sure. Just that it had the potential to arise much earlier than 300,000 years ago, where mm-hmm. the laryngeal descent theory puts it. Um, but this is right, obviously, right. this concept isn't new. It's just that the field is now just starting to look at it more. Yeah. So it will require a lot more research to pin down a- yeah. anything. Do you have any idea of what other factors would influence the evolution of speech that would put it somewhere between that 300,000 and 27 million years ago. Brain brain capacity possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh. I was going to say the rise of things like agriculture and like uh? the need for better communication yes. between humans. Yeah. Oh, you're you're both so smart. <laughs> 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 so the first one that is a huge barrier is the brain of course so uh, yeah. fitch says that the vocal track is not the bottleneck he doesn't think but neural changes mm. Mm. i'm yeah. really inclined mm. to agree with that this is based on this idea that there's macaques that he studied had vocal tracks ready for speech but they don't have brains right. ready for speech mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and looking at brain patterns in primates seems to confirm this And then to Caroline's point, this is the idea of socialisation. John Locke told Atlantic that he believes speech and language couldn't have evolved before humans began living in social groups and they needed Mm. speech. Mm -hmm. And we don't know specifically when that started, but we know it was a lot later than 27 million years. Yeah. One of the theories I really like is that some researchers believe that speech may have arisen around three million years ago from when we found the earliest examples of jewellery because it links speech to symbolic thinking. (gasps) That's so cool. Right, because we, we, and that's what's so interesting about having this like lower bound is that we know that now if the limiting factor is not Mm -hmm. the mechanics of it, but Mm -hmm. something more than that, then we can start. Oh, this is so interesting. So cool. And to to the symbolic thinking point, a 2015 study actually linked the building of stone tools to speech because they found that making stone tools and speech use the same areas of the brain and have same similar brain activation patterns. Interesting. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the truth is it's probably a very complex combination of things. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. I don't want it to, to, to be like yeah. the, the tool area and the speak area. It's, yeah. Yeah. But, but to your point, they can they can have overlaps. But yeah, no, that but is, and, uh... and like we talked about, speech is so inextricably mixed up with language that it makes it even yeah. more complicated yeah. to understand. Right. Yeah. All of this mm. boils down to the answer which is we don't know <laughs> which is which is <laughs> very valid answer is the answer yeah. to so many of my question topics <laughs> and this is kind of where the actual question ends but it's not where my little bit of this topic ends because where i mm-hmm. where i want to end this is with one of my favorite things to talk about on the podcast which is beef <laughs> science oh, beef. Oh, we're we gonna get some more science beef. This gonna is my favorite spicy. thing. This oh is, my goodness. This beef is actually so interesting and important to you'll see. Hmm. So Lee okay. so Philip Liebram, who originated and developed Landial Descent Theory, had something to say about mm-hmm. the review. Oh boy. In the in an Atlantic article. He called the new paper I love scientific criticism. It's what advances knowledge further, and I'm happy to continue doing more studies yeah. to prove my theory correct. Exactly. That's just what he said. Uh-huh. He called the new paper Ding. just a complete misrepresentation of the entire field. <gasps> <laughs> the entire field. What? He said one of the quantitative models Ooh. the new study relies on doesn't properly represent the shape of the larynx, tongue, and other parts we use to talk. It would convert a mailing tube into a human vocal tract. <laughs> and according to Libram, laryngeal descent theory never claimed language was not possible prior to the critical changes in our ancestors' throat anatomy. They're trying to set up a straw man, he said. So he has an issue with how the new study has, like, represented all of these different He's things. He's saying that he thinks that it, they're misrepresenting his theory... Which okay. I understand to an extent. His research was good. Yeah. But there's a reason why others feel so strongly against laryngeal descent theory. And um, one of the authors of the review, Thomas Sawalis, said lateral descent theory told people basically don't bother to go look for speech abilities in yeah. anything yeah. other than modern humans. I think uh-huh. it's like this idea that his theory is not a bad theory and it's not it, mm-hmm. it's, it's not that we're going to get rid of it just because this this new yeah. research is now yeah. being talked about more. The whole problem is that his theory overshadowed the field for so long mm-hmm. that it mm-hmm. uh, basically stalled the research yeah. area. Yeah. And when people are making that criticism, that's what he's taking an issue with rather than I, don't, I think it's like he's not really, yeah. Mm. Mm. We, we we all need to be able to take a little bit of criticism every now and then I'll you say know? Greg Hickok, a cognitive science professor at University of California Said that when he was trained in linguistics This was an established, almost dogmatic idea The new study mm. is a dramatic reversal mm. of the status quo He said, the phrase came to mind when I wow. finished was Mic drop oh. <laughs> The fact that you got to quote Mic drop is amazing. <laughs> that, means, that means it's really a mic drop. Yeah. I mean, in defense of Liberum, um, he actually is a proponent of speech emerging with symbolic thinking, so three million years mm, ago. Mm. So he's not so dogmatic on even his own idea, but yeah. it's clear that his theory has had a stronghold on this research area yeah. For, yeah. for decades and has discouraged others from pursuing ideas. From looking at it, yeah, yeah. And that, that is, is where yeah. the whole issue lies. Um. That is the end of the topic. I chose this question because I was interested in knowing the answer, of course. But really, I thought the answer would be simple. Um, Yeah. And I was really, really wrong. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
researching this topic was wow. a journey. Um, yeah. It really mm-hmm. made me uh, appreciate how difficult this area of research is not just because of Mm, things mm. like fossilized records being impossible to look at from soft tissues but also the fact this is like a deeply multidisciplinary field with primatologists speech scientists anthropologists uh, archaeologists with Mm -hmm. good grief yeah tying in aspects of phonetics anatomy acoustics human development yeah yeah this has been called this yeah. question has been called one of the hardest problems in science. Wow. Really? Um, because it is so nuanced and there are so yeah. many aspects you have to bring into it. So the answer to today's question, when did speech evolve? Like so many of my questions is, uh? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, ans- the answer is, that's an interesting question. Let's talk about yeah. why it's interesting. Yeah. It's between 27 million years and 300,000 years ago, which is quite cool. a span of time. That is, yeah. Uh-huh. Since the dawn of time, man has dreamed of bringing life back from the dead. From Orpheus and Eurydice to Frankenstein's monster, resurrection has long been merely the stuff of myth, fiction, and fairy tale. Until now. Actually, we still can't bring people back from the dead. That would be crazy, but the Dead Pilot Society podcast has found a way to resurrect great dead comedy pilots from Hollywood's finest writers. Every month, Dead Pilot Society brings you a reading of a comedy pilot that was sold and developed but never produced, performed by the funniest actors from film and television. How does Dead Pilot Society achieve this miracle? The answer can only be found at MaximumFun.org. Okay, so this episode's miscellaneous topic is going to be the history of birthdays. This is the history of Monday things part five, I do believe. I went back and counted. Um, so to celebrate... Also, I'm sorry, is this is this the birthday of birthdays? <gasps> like, what is the birthday of birthdays? I love how you phrase the that. Birthday? <laughs> the birthday, uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it's the podcast's birthday. We're one, so we're gonna we're, we're doing birthday themed stuff. We're one I'm years doing birthday. You both did well. Tom did. I'm I, I'm doing air quotations. Birthdays theme. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> mine is definitely birthday themed. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking yeah. about, Tom. Sorry. <laughs> so before we... we should redefine birthdays by the cesium atom is what oh, i'm saying my goodness. No, it would make you. it very very accurate you know uh-huh. <laughs> so before we talk about birthdays i'm gonna ask you something a little bit different we're going off on a tangent you might already have figured out what it is what do we need to have in order to be able to celebrate birthdays oh fuck uh, to be born balloons <laughs> Uh, friends dates we need dates we do need dates we need a way to presents (laughs) all right get let let him get out of his system you keep going on the tail on the donkey Uh okay Uh sorry were you guys saying something Uh i said dates dates is the answer we need a way to track time but not in a like minutes, seconds. Oh, I know the answer to this one. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. A way to track time. Quartz crystals. Oh my- <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we it need... Was a tw- 1927 birthdays were invented. Sorry, please. <laughs> You're not going to get through this topic. I'm not. No, no. 
Yeah, we need a way, we need some form of calendar, um, or just a way of keeping track of dates. We had very loose ways of keeping track of dates and years, thousands of years ago. My favorite possible example is the. I'm gonna probably not pronounce this correctly. I'm very sorry. The wordy Yuang Stone, which is based in Victoria, Australia. And that dates back to about 11,000 years ago. Holy so really moly. long time ago. Yeah. So it's kind of like Stonehenge-esque, if, like, if mm. that gives you some <laughs> sort of image in your head. It was built by the, again, so sorry in the pronunciation of this, the Wadawurrung people, who were mm. native or traditional inhabitants of the site. However, mm -hmm. the majority of the understanding of the rock's significance was lost. Which is a real shame. So according to the BBC, when the traditional language and practices were banned of these people in the 20th century, oh, a lot of the knowledge about these stones was also lost at the same time. God now, damn it. I don't, I don't mean to point fingers, <clears throat> Britain, but maybe <laughs> if some countries hadn't come along and fucking like colonised everywhere... Britain, then maybe this wouldn't have happened because this possibly was one of the earliest examples of keeping track of the date. Oh, God damn it. So we have now gone back to people who are linked with this group and scientists as well who have figured out that this hmm. stone system essentially was a super advanced sundial which they used to determine when the summer and winter solstices were, hmm. as well as each equinox. They used these stones possibly to guide their agricultural practices. Because because the like if you're go coming at this like from first principles, like the way you can measure a year is because the Earth is at a tilt as it goes around the sun. Mm -hmm. the 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 lengths of the days yeah. change uniformly. That's the exactly year. it. Yeah. So there are like mm -hmm. two stones on each edge of this like arrangement, and I think the yeah. idea is like. When the sun sun is at its longest day, it reaches one edge. And when it's at its shortest day, it reaches the other edge. So that was how they kept track of the years passing. That's so cool. Which is so cool, isn't it? They've also been able to confirm like that this was made 11,000 years ago based on the clock's current inaccuracies. So obviously... Oh, yeah, how cool. cool is that, right? So obviously the Earth's orbit has changed in the last 11,000 years. But they figured out that if it was based on the Earth's orbit 11,000 years ago, it would have been accurate. Mm. Yeah, so that's pretty fun. Um, Wild. Really, really cool. The earliest actual calendars then date back to around the Bronze Age with... Like calendars as we know yeah, them. Yeah, calendars that we sort of recognise with civilizations in the Near East region, such as Babylonians and Persians being among the first to record time using natural cycles. This included days, lunar cycles, uh, which were months, and solar cycles, which were years. The Egyptians are then responsible for trying to make months around 30 days, and even the yeah. first to introduce the concept of leap years, which is but really based, cool. Is that based on the, the moon? Yes, that, that would have been based... Early ones would have been based on the moon. Those 30 days would have been less based on the moon and more just like, a, we would like it to be a standardized thing for each month. Yeah, basically. right. It, it, it's one of those things where, it, you know, we, we now know that the, 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 the moon and the sun don't line up in terms of like, it's not a perfect yeah. um, 
cycle with the moon cycle. But the other thing to consider that, I, you know, because I, I, some of this came up a little bit in my clock mm-hmm. research, but like the phases of the moon are amazing for keeping time because there's it's so accurate. Yeah. Like it, yeah. no, there's no clearer like measure of roughly 30 days than like uh, than the moon because it's just you look up and it, it's literally like like ticking like a clock uh-huh. almost. Yeah. Versus versus things like a year, which can be you know obviously you know with more advanced calculations you can calculate that but like the moon is like it's it's just a clock that's there basically so it makes sense that so many places do a lunar cycle yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. so the egyptians sort of responsible for making calendars that we would recognize with standardized months leap years all of that sort of stuff so with that in mind who do you think did birthdays first um oh okay so it's older than oh no it's egyptians isn't it god damn it <laughs> well because i'm gonna i was it's gonna say egyptians. It's, it's ancient egyptians so the egyptians sort of did it but i'm saying that the egyptians didn't do oh, it oh thank god oh. you're, For you're once, pretty happy to, to, hear. to ancient egypt so the earliest reference of a birthday can be found in the bible specifically Genesis 40:20 and this does talk about pharaohs and their birthdays but it's not quite oh, as it seems that's later than i thought surely ancient china celebrated birthdays because they had birth years or are you, you're talking about really celebrating the day like yeah. at, like the act of celebrating like, it like birthdays as we mm. know them now oh okay yeah mm. so in Genesis 40.20, it talks about a pharaoh's birthday, which on the surface of it would be like, okay, the Egyptians did it first. What we now understand is that it isn't actually talking about a pharaoh's birthday, but more sort of the day that they were coronated, okay. which they did celebrate every year based on their calendars, hmm. which is really cool. So the idea of it is that when somebody became a pharaoh, it was believed that they were essentially becoming a god. So they were celebrating the birth of a god. Oh. Which is why they called oh. it a birthday. That's oh. interesting. Yeah. That's... That's really interesting. So this is the theme with several civilizations, like celebrating gods and god days each year rather than a normal hmm. man's birthday. Which is which is interesting because it, it satisfies like one qualification of my idea of birthday, which is it's an arbitrary annual yeah. celebration. Mm-hmm. Right? So, but... But it's not a birth. It's not exactly any person's day of birth, which is a different arbitrary annual thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we started like celebrating things on a yearly basis, but not really like, like only very, very specific people got Mm -hmm. this. Not everybody. Mm -hmm. So we see this sort of thing, especially in ancient Greek culture, where it's assumed that the Greeks sort of borrowed this idea from the Egyptians of celebrating gods on specific days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are then a few sources that start talking about birthdays for normal people start to emerge, especially in pagan rituals, where it's believed that people were vulnerable to evil spirits on the day that they were born, mm. and then repeating oh. that each year afterwards. So instead of celebrating your birthday people would chant and sing and try to drive these evil spirits away from you that's how um, i celebrate my birthday now is that how you guys do it <laughs> you go. so that's when the uh, first birthday was that's honestly that makes that's so interesting it's so pagans interesting are, yeah right? pagans are weird though well and and it's one of those things where 
again, we have to be like, well, why wouldn't you celebrate your birthday? But then you go back and it's like, why would you why celebrate, would you your, celebrate birthday, your birthday? Right? I, still, like, what is I the... think that now, though, I, I still think this day, I find it weird that we celebrate birthdays when there are, yeah. you know, there are cultures who do, they celebrate like the mother, for example, on, yeah, on their birthday. Yeah. And that, I'm mm-hmm. like, that makes sense to me. That makes more like, sense. Yeah. Like you're just celebrating yeah. like the day that you were brought into the world. It's like weird. I don't well, get it's like, it. No, yeah. we're celebrating uh-huh. the day that your mom did a ton of work yeah. to make yeah. you a person. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I love it because I want presents. But <laughs> <laughs> but no, to I, I can see that concept of like, um, you know, I like you bring brought into this world and the the that being like a a spiritual thing yeah, of absolutely. even yeah this concept of like defense that mm-hmm. you're you're weak you're vulnerable because you're just born which yeah. is interesting yeah and of course as soon as you're brought into the world like attracting all of these evil spirits then makes sense you weren't exposed to them beforehand mm. and now you are being mm. exposed to them so it like it makes complete sense why they would have this attitude towards it rather than. Mm-hmm. A celebration thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Than, yeah presents. So people didn't bring gifts for this person, obviously, but they did bring well wishes and pure intentions, according to a 2020 paper. Pure intentions. Which is a lot cheaper. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Can't do that today. I'm going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to, I'm definitely using that at the next birthday I go to. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello, I bring pure intentions. <laughs> Normally, bad intentions just for you today. (laughs) But this one day a year. (laughs) Um, I will note on that point, I couldn't access the source that this paper referenced. So like grain of salt. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a very common belief that this is like the earliest form of a birthday ritual or celebration for a normal person Mm -hmm. the first group that we know who actively celebrated a normal person's birthday was the romans we know that they had very public holidays to celebrate birthdays like for whoever was in charge at the time whatever emperor was in charge they did also have like holidays to celebrate gods each year um a very famous one Mm. was saturnalia which was celebrated between the 17th and the 23rd of december each year But they also had like private celebrations too. Some sources say that women still didn't celebrate their birthday. I think it's a case that they didn't celebrate publicly their birthdays, but privately they would celebrate their birthdays with their loved Mm, ones. mm. A really lovely source for this is a writing tablet, which was excavated in the 80s in Northern Britain. It was dated 100 to 105 CA, and it contains a well-preserved example of a birthday invitation. (gasps) How cute is that? So in this tablet, a person called Claudia Severa, the wife of a Roman officer, invites another officer's wife to her house on the third day of the Ides of September to celebrate her own birthday. That's so cute. I don't know why. It's like this this idea... This idea of whenever we cover like historical topics, hearing about humans doing things that humanize people from thousands yeah, of years ago uh-huh. is so like really hits me hard it's so strange isn't it because like you, when you think about these people from so long ago it's very very hard to see them as people rather than just things we're interested in mm. and like the act of like passing Writing on a, a little birthday invitation yeah is did we find a uh, her response that was on another tablet that was like so sorry, so sorry. just got your tablet today <laughs> uh, 
Sorry. I have something so sorry else going I'm washing on. my hair. It's the annual <laughs> hair wash. <laughs> I celebrate it every single day this September. Still I'm so... sending you good tidings, though. Yeah, I'm sending pure you pure intentions. Pure intentions. <laughs> XOXO. Gossip girl. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh gosh. So these celebrations still had a religious aspect, of course. So people would mm. bring offerings of food from the family's meal that day, which included things like honey cake, as well as flowers, etc. So they would have a big old celebration. Wow, like birthday ass things. Those are really birthday things, aren't they? And then they would give some of these like birthday things to the gods that the family like worship. That that is so interesting. The deriving birthdays from spiritual things is very interesting. It's like, really I, they feel so connected. No, now. but it makes it makes perfect sense to me. In like yeah. where we where we are literally watching, for example, things like Christmas, which was a, cel a spiritual celebration, become a personal or like commercialized thing yeah. instead. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. we literally like our, maybe not us so much, but like our family has definitely watched like that happen. It makes yeah. sense. It makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. to me that like something yeah. like a birthday would have started there as well, or any like yeah. holiday celebration. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. At this point, it was so deeply rooted in how people lived that yeah. it makes so mm. much sense that those two things would be really, really closely linked. You know. Mm -hmm. um, at this point, other birthday celebrations crop up around the world as well, as well as party poopers who looked down on birthday celebrations, uh. like the early Christians. Oh, really? Yeah. So Only Jesus' birthday allowed. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Christians believed that everybody was born with original sin and essentially believed that there was no good reason to be celebrating birthdays. What? Oh, What's wrong with... God, that's fucking miserable. <laughs> They're so miserable. Um, and even possibly thought that celebrating was evil due to its connection with other gods from other religions. So because oh, it was that, seen as okay. so religious, oh. celebrating it is then seen as against their religion. That's so interesting. That's so, Which yeah. is really, really Especially in this, like, uh, because it clearly seems that before that, in these polytheistic religions, it was like, hell yeah, let's fucking go. Yeah. Let's party. Get, uh -huh. get some yeah. honey cake. That's interesting. Um, and that's sort of why we have birthdays now. Um. I didn't want to leave it on a note of just like, oh, good. so I want to go on a tiny other little tangent, which is my favourite birthday tradition, which is birthday cake and candles. Oh! Obviously, we know the Romans did do cake to some extent. Romans used cake for a lot of their celebrations. It wasn't just birthdays that they like brought mm -hmm. honey cake out for. Mm -hmm. So... When do you think the first children's birthday celebration with cake and candles happened? That's so interesting. 1700s, 1600s. Ooh, 1700s. Oh, closer with 1700s. 1700s, 1736. It, it is interesting because on the one hand, you know, candles are, are candles. We've had candles for a while. Yeah. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, to your point, Caroline, the concept of celebrating a birthday is relatively recent. So, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think Ella's guess is probably right. So it was around the 1800s in Germany. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So the celebration was called Kinderfeste, and it involved giving children ridiculously sweet cakes with candles on the top of them, one candle for every year that they've been alive, as well as possibly an extra candle in a way of sort of wishing that the child could live for another year. 
there's something really dark about that. It's really dark, but really kind of fun at the same time. It's, very, it's fun, but like the idea, yeah. I hope you live another year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is funny because I, I, I think I grew up doing that. And in my mind, it was more just like, oh, and you get an extra candle. It's great. Yeah. One more candle. How fun please. is that? <laughs> um, so at some point, not far from where that tradition began, blowing out candles also began, but it didn't always start off with people blowing out their candles, which I think is really strange. Huh? So it appears at least to begin with, these candles would be lit at the beginning of the day, would be allowed to burn out completely, no. at which point the child would then be allowed to eat the cake. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like a child's nightmare. Right? Are you kidding me? You'd be like, God, I wish you. would be like, I hope they get the short candles this year. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. So this sort of tradition was reserved for really wealthy parents due to the nature of producing these uber sweet cakes with a bunch of fillings and things mm, like that in mm. them until the industrial revolution. When things like sweet cakes became cheaper and easier to produce and sell en masse, meaning that everybody could celebrate Kinderfesta. And then obviously as globalization mm -hmm. happened, other cultures started celebrating this as well. So eventually the tradition just spread. But the like age candle thing yeah, is such a, such a birthday thing. It's so strange, thing. isn't it? Yeah. Such a like yeah. a thing that we are so used to now, mm. which like obviously it didn't always happen. So in really some fun. ways, makes no sense at all. Yeah. Like, why would you do that? But now, yeah. Um, so we've covered calendars, gods, colonization, and cake all in one topic. <laughs> Happy birthday. Let's learn everything. Woo! Yeah. Happy birthday. Let's learn everything. Happy birthday. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you for that. That was I had cute. to do it. That was such a nice topic. Well, can I ask, uh, just to get extra miscellaneous, do you all have any favorite birthday memories or uh, birthday Aww. traditions? Oh, yeah. So on one of my birthdays, I believe it was my maybe my like 12th birthday or something like that. I really I I wanted a trampoline so <laughs> goddamn bad. <laughs> and my parents got me a trampoline for my birthday. But they then also my brother was also really, really into Doctor Who at the time. I'm a twin. We celebrate our birthday right. on the same day. So we have like a combined cake. And the cake was decorated as a Dalek on a trampoline. Oh, Aww, that's so cute. That's and it's, it's the one that I will always remember. That was the like, the most cool cake I've ever seen in my yeah, life. That's so sweet. I yeah. I'm like, that's as soon as you said twin compromise. you had a birthday yeah. cake memory, it just triggered something in my brain, which is <gasps> not as sweet. Oh, no. <laughs> it, was, it was my sixth birthday. This is I like, also got a trampoline dollar cake, but I didn't know. I, I, I used to love Doctor Who too, and I once got a TARDIS cake, which was the best <gasps> birthday amazing. cake I've ever had. Yeah. yeah. But it was like, so this is a lot earlier. My sixth birthday, I had a joint birthday party with a a friend whose birthday was near mine and we had one big cake which was split into two halves of the decorations they had were toys on each side for either of us he was a boy so he had like superheroes and pokemon <laughs> and i had barbies and stuff and i threw an absolute fit i was like oh, screaming yeah. and crying i was like i want the pokemon oh my god <laughs> this is one of my earliest memories is crying over this birthday cake because wow. i i had barbies. over the injustice of the patriarchy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i was like i want the boy side <laughs> 
What about you, That's Tom? Amazing. Have you got any uh, birthday memories that you'd like to share? I remember uh, very distinctly those uh, birthday candles that can't you can't blow out. I remember those oh, being very fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'll I'll share a more recent one, which is that I'm very happy that as I this is both a good thing and a bad thing is that I as I've gotten to be a more competent baker. Um, birthday treats have started to fall like i i made i made the cake for my mom's last birthday uh and also for my dad and so it it's uh it's it's become a a fun tradition as much as the work is on me now to make a birthday cake mm. mm-hmm. uh it is still it does make me happy that i'm able to to to, to, to do that which is nice that's really nice yeah. yeah that's really sweet you guys you guys memories are so cute and mine is like <laughs> so angry. I feel like yours is so quintessentially Ella, though. <laughs> but like... I mean, you're right. First of all, you're right. <laughs> like, if it had been anything else, <laughs> yeah, you Jesus know, Christ, that's very telling of me. <laughs> do you know? Do you know what time it is? I think I do. I think it's <gasps> it's review corner. <gasps> Um, little jingle was made by Dan from Australia. Thank you we so loved, much. That's so cute. We loved your email so so much. And I think it's only only fair that we read uh, Dan's little review that he sent in his message. He said. Thank you for coming together to create such a wonderful podcast. The topics you choose are always fantastically interesting. Your unmistakable fascination and intrigue drive the conversation to marvelous places. And really, flicking on the podcast is akin to wrapping myself up in a big old snuggly fun science burrito blanket. So thank you for doing what you do. Oh, fun science burrito blanket. I love that. So uh, thanks, Dan, for sending us a uh, review corner theme song. If you want to do the same, I suppose you can. Uh, otherwise, we'll just keep making Ella sing it, which is perfectly fine. <laughs> it's review corner. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> now, folks, that wasn't that actually wasn't Dan's. That was actually Ella doing the cover of that. Uh, but otherwise, if you just want to leave us uh, a review on Apple Podcasts, we will more than happily read we that. We literally... We really do read them all, as you guys know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, do y'all have any plugs or shoutouts? No. No. Uh, I'd like to plug... No, uh, it's I... even ruined it. <laughs> Sorry, you can't just... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was on recently on the podcast Troubled Waters, also Woo! a Max Fun show. I uh, got to talk about Phantom of the Opera and uh, fake horror movies, um, and it was a delight. Go check that out. Ah. Amazing. I'll check it out, and everyone else should too. Um, I will plug <laughs> Let's Learn Everything. We are Let's Learn Everything pod on Twitter. We are Let's Learn Everything on TikTok, and you should go to let's learn everything pod.com to just find all of that stuff and join the Discord where you can come and talk about the podcast and other things. We've got so much going on there. Tell us your birthday traditions. Oh, yeah. Happy oh, lovely. lovely. So, today we learned about the the messy, strange history of not just keeping time but telling time to each other. We learned about a wonderfully interesting, unanswerable question, mm-hmm. which is the story of human speech and how we have been figuring it out for a while now. And we learned about the uh, silly history of birthdays throughout the years and also our personal birthday traditions. 
And I guess we've come up with the show's birthdays traditions today, which is great. And you can join us all next time where we will learn about everything. Let's Learn Everything is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted and produced by Ella Hubber, Tom Lum and Caroline Roper with editing and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lum. I cannot uh, express how bad it is when we try and synchronize singing. Oh, yeah! <laughs> MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.